want to read a scripture for you. So as we introduce our guest speaker, who's kind of been around long enough to where he's not so much a guest, but anyway, for lack of better terms, our guest speaker, Preston. Psalm 126, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. As is our habit, there are times that uh, guests come to restoration and different ones of us strike up friendships and get to know them. And uh, Preston and I have met a few times and had some good conversations. And one time he began to... um, just share, give me a little sneak peek into his story. And then as he shared it, he went a little deeper and went a little deeper. And I was just sitting there at the lunch table in awe, in absolute awe of what Preston has experienced in his life. And you would never, ever know it, just meeting him, watching him praise, watching him worship. But he has a very deep, rich testimony. And as he began to share his story... I said, if you think it would ever be a blessing to you, I would gladly give you a platform to share your testimony uh, with our congregation. If it would be helpful to you, I know it would be a blessing to our congregation. And he prayed about it and he thought about it. And he said, I would like to do that. Um, And so we're going to listen to his testimony. At first we thought about, we weren't sure how long it would take, but... It's not the kind of story that you can really just explain in 10 minutes or really even 15 minutes. And so I said, Preston, just tell tell us the whole thing. We need to hear it all. And so he's willing to do that. And I just want to say, uh, I think the power in this testimony is that not all of the loose ends are neatly wrapped up. And I know that in our lives, we want everything to go smooth. And I know that in the end, God wraps everything up very neatly. There's, there's no loose ends in heavens. But in here on this earth, there, there's hurt and there's pains and there's things that are not resolved. And we try hard to resolve them and we try hard to heal and get over them. But some things we just carry through. And so this is not one of those testimonies that we, we may not walk out of here feeling good in the sense of, you know, victory and Jesus kind of thing. But we will feel good in the sense that God is with us at all times. And we we talked about rejoicing in Philippians. And that's a part of the Christian life. But so is weeping. And God weeps with us. And he rejoices with us. Preston's sowed some tears. And we look forward to the day when they will grow in joy. Um, I also want to say that... In this story, he Preston is still living it. The story is still being written. And the emotion is raw. And we're just going to love you through this. Maybe cry with you through this. And he's just going to come up here and do the best he can to the glory of God. And nobody can ask for any more. So Preston. I'm going to start with the book of Job, if you want to follow chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Chapter 17, verse 1. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. 
I want you to kind of hold on to those verses. We're going to come back to them a little later in the testimony. But just kind of have that in the back of your head as this unfolds. But I will come back to that. So just a quick introduction. My name is Preston. I know kind of Paul introduced me. I've been staying at the farm all summer from Austin, Texas. I just want to give you a quick background to my life. And then I'll kind of get to the meat of the testimony. So I was born in Dallas, Texas. I was actually raised in a Christian home. Became a believer at a pretty young age, about five years old. I asked, kind of asked Jesus in my heart. And for the most part, I, I did follow Jesus, at least in the way that I knew how. Looking back, I understand now that in my younger years, my relationship with God was more of trying to follow the rules to earn love, which had a lot to do with some of the dysfunctionality in my home. That's kind of how I approached God. It wasn't until a lot later that I learned that a relationship God is really a relationship. It's dynamic and breathing and, and living. Um, I did kind of have some dreams in my younger years of being a missionary. I never really knew how to get there. That was always kind of underneath the surface. I ended up going to Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas, graduated with a degree in communications. Then I went on to join the Houston Fire Department. I became a firefighter and paramedic. I uh, did that for about five years, and that's where my love for medicine grew. I ended up deciding to go to graduate school at Baylor College of Medicine to become a PA or physician assistant. So I started practicing in about 2013, practicing medicine in 2013. And about a year, year and a half into my job, I was watching the news. And there was, at the time, this was the summer of 2014. And that was about when, if, if any of you recall, there was a raging Ebola epidemic going on in West Africa. It was one of the worst that's ever happened. And as I was watching that, I just, I felt my heart stirred. And I knew that I, I wanted to go serve. There was, there's got to be a way I can go help. I mean, I have the skills. I, I work in medicine. Surely I can, I can contribute. So I uh, began the process of looking for ways to do that. Long story short, got hired by an organization called Partners in Health which is, it's, it's a secular humanitarian organization, not expressly Christian. And so they hired me, and my slated deployment would, would have been in early 2015. So February 2015, I shipped over there with about 12 other people. They were sending people about every two weeks, and your deployment would be anywhere between two and three months. And it was about what you would have seen on TV. It would have been about what you would have seen in the papers. It was that bad. Uh, now, the, the peak of the outbreak had kind of come and gone, so it wasn't as heavy as many people, but there were still people getting Ebola. There were still people dying. Uh, I was working in Sierra Leone, country of Sierra Leone, in something called an ETU, stands for Ebola Treatment Unit. And we were trying to provide as much care as we could given the circumstances, but it was about a fraction of the kind of care you would receive in the United States. There was no air conditioning. There was no linens. There was no nice food trays. I mean, it was bare, bare bones. Um, and I think if that was all I had to have experienced, that, that probably would have been enough. That would have been enough to have to come back and sort of sort through all of that. But life and, and perhaps God had other plans for me. So about three weeks into my deployment, um, on March the 10th, 2015, I woke up in my tent because we were staying in these military-style tents, and I had a 103-degree fever. Now, I didn't panic. I knew full well, when you're in Africa, there's about 100 reasons you can get a fever. So it was just a matter of what's, what's happening here. But I had to kind of shelter in place, immediately called my supervisor. I went into quarantine immediately. Um, from that point forward, nobody came within about four feet of me. Um, a doctor came in and assessed me in my tent. They determined we're going to send you to a facility about two hours away to get you assessed and tested because you, you had to be tested no matter what. So 
they put me on an ambulance uh, in the back by myself, took about a two-hour ride to this, this facility. And at this point, my symptoms were kind of getting worse. I was fatigued. I was weak. My fever was, was worsening. I was beginning to vomit in the back of this ambulance. It, it didn't feel good. I, I knew something was really wrong. So I arrived at the facility. Uh, it was actually run by the British, a British group. Uh, they received me in, took me to the back, gave me some medication, made me feel a little better. Uh, took a blood sample, and then I just had to wait for about four or five hours because it took that long to get the result back. At around 10 o'clock p.m., Sierra Leone time, on March the 10th, I'll never forget the words the doctor said to me. She came in and she said, Preston, I'm sorry I had bad news. Your PCR test is positive for the Ebola virus. And I kind of paused because... I thought this is there's no this can't be real this it's like a movie this there's this that can't be happening. She went on to say uh, we're going to contact the State Department, we're going to contact the CDC, we're going to get you out of here hopefully soon. We're going to get you on a plane, get you out of here. And I knew at that point that death was a real possibility, but I remained somewhat hopeful because I just thought well if I could just maybe if I can just hang on long enough. Maybe I can get through this. But I knew, having been a physician assistant, having watched other people go through the progression of the illness, I knew exactly what lay ahead. And I wasn't happy about that prospect. So about two days later, on March the 12th, they put me on another ambulance for, another. this time, a four-hour ride to an airfield. Um, I was put on a plane, specialized plane, with an infectious disease unit in the back. I was the only passenger on the plane. They had three nurses that would rotate in and out of the compartment to take care of me for the 18 hours back to the United States. By the time I arrived on U.S. soil, I was too weak to walk. I had to be carried off the plane, put in a bubble containment unit on yet another ambulance with a physician this time, and about 30 minutes away to the, it's called the National Institutes of Health Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. So on the early morning of March the 13th, 2015, I was admitted to the isolation unit of that hospital. Well, those, the first two days I was there, my condition continued to worsen. My kidneys began failing. My liver began failing. I was not breathing adequately to sustain life. I, I was too weak. I, I, so, I was so weak I could barely breathe. So they actually had to put me on a ventilator. Stuck a tube down my throat, knocked me unconscious, and a machine breathed for me for about 10 days. I have no recollection of those 10 days. I only know what I've been told later by doctors. And for that next 10 days, they watched and waited. My parents had come to the hospital and they watched. They could not come into my room. No one was allowed in my room except for the doctors. And during those 10 days, I got worse. My kidneys got worse. My liver got worse. My brain swelled and my spinal cord swelled with fluid. My lungs filled with fluid. It didn't look good. They prepared for the worst. Then somewhere in the middle of those 10 days, something turned. My kidneys just showed a slight improvement one day. My liver showed some slight improvement one day. And, and this continued the next day and the next day. And eventually, on March the 25th, 2015, they were able to take the tube out of my mouth and let me breathe for the first time on my own. After I came to consciousness off the ventilator, again, I began a very slow and arduous recovery that's ongoing to this day. At that point, I lost about 30 pounds. I could do nothing for myself. I had to relearn how to do everything, how to walk, talk, 
eat, be coordinated, all kinds of physical therapy. In short, I had to relearn how to be human. On April the 7th, 2015, I was finally declared Ebola free. It was gone from my blood. And I was allowed to come out of isolation and have human contact for the first time in nearly a month. And then two days later, on April the 9th, I was discharged from the hospital to go home to live with my family. Um, I believe, obviously, the life I built up in Houston and live with my folks for a while because I would need some help. So after 14 years of being independent on my home, I went back to live with my parents. And I'll just let you sit with that for a second because that can be difficult under the best of circumstances. So now you might think that this is where the story ends. You're probably sitting there thinking, whew, good, you're alive. Okay, praise be to God. Wonderful. Let's wrap it up. But no, that's not the end of the story. It's actually just the beginning. And I do thank God for saving my life, but I can tell you that the journey to recovery has been, at times, a living hell on earth and full of despair, hopelessness, struggle, and just catastrophic loss. Also filled with God's provision, though. Let me see if I can explain, though. You see, up to that point, I had learned how to follow the rules in life and with God. You know, I went to school, I graduated, I worked hard, I saved money. I even went to graduate school. You know, I went to church, I did all the things you're supposed to do. I even went to the mission field where I thought God was calling me. But the rules of this ordeal were much different. God removed nearly every single protection that life has to offer. I had zero control, zero autonomy. Very limited ability to affect any change in my life. I'd basically been immersed overnight in, into chaos. And chaos introduces so many unknowns that you don't even know where to start. It's kind of like being dropped naked into the jungle. Like, you don't even know what to do. And I was, it was at a stage in life when all of my peers were well into their lives. They had momentum, they had stability, maybe marriages, kids, jobs, finances. And for me, a nuclear bomb had just gone off in my life. And it was going to take a long time to recover, and very few people understood this. You see, if, remember, during the period of time I was in the hospital, I, could, I, I, could do, I couldn't eat on my own. I, I, sorry for the graphic nature, I could not pee or poop on my own. I couldn't even roll over in bed on my own. I had to help with all those things. And, and when you have all those things stripped from you, it's, it's pretty devastating. You'd be surprised how out of control you feel when that happens. You see, even all of you in here, you take for granted that you were able to walk on your own and sit down on your own today. I don't take that for granted anymore. I mean, I had been decimated down to the cellular level. After I left the hospital, I was actually really grieving some pretty heavy losses, but I, I, I didn't even probably realize that I was grieving. Most of the time, I was just numb for quite some time. But let me see if I can explain to you the loss that I felt. You see, from what I've been able to put together, there's about seven things that kind of make up your identity to the outside world. And I'm not talking about your spiritual life, but all the other things. 
So you have, number one, you have your body, okay, your health. Number two, you have your work or how you make a living. If you're younger, you have school. You go to school. Number three, the place where you live, the literal city, the place that you are. Number four would be just the culture that you are, that you are in, the culture of your nation, the culture of even your little town. So those are the first four. And then the last three of the seven are actually more relational. So number five would be your family, your biological family, mom, dad, brothers, sisters. Number six would be your community. So that would be your friends, your social life, maybe your church. And then number seven, if you have it, would be a significant other. Girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, etc. So think of them as like legs of a table that your life kind of sits on. Now, when one of these things gets disrupted, things can get a little stressful. You know, maybe if you lose your job, that can be stressful. Or if you lose your health, it's kind of stressful. Well, if you lose two of them at the same time, it's a little more dicey. You might need some ongoing help. You might need some counseling. It's going to be pretty difficult, maybe for a, a while. Well, for me, the first four wiped out overnight, gone. Because my body had been decimated. I couldn't work and didn't know if I ever would be able, able to in the way I was used to. My location, I went from living in Houston to a foreign country to living in a hospital by myself in a room to Dallas. And then culturally, I was in the first world, then the third world, then by myself in isolation for a month, and then back to the first world. That's a lot of change for one person. I might even argue, yeah, maybe the, one of the relational components, the community for me changed quite drastically as well. And I went back to live at home where I hadn't lived in, in years. So that, that, was, that was overwhelming, just mind-blowing. And it was so overwhelming that when you combine that with just the traumatic nature of what I experienced in the hospital and in Africa, it basically eventually led to pretty severe symptoms of what's called post-traumatic stress disorder. I had depression. I had anxiety. I had panic attacks. I cried half the time. The other half the time, I was just numb and checked out. And I was suicidal for a time. Now, this took a while to play out. The symptoms kind of came on gradually. They probably peaked probably a year and a half after I left the hospital, give or take, year to, year to two years. But there, there was just kind of this ebb and flow and progression. And, and honestly, I'm, and, they, and they lasted for probably two or three years. And so to be honest, I'm not that far removed from it. I, just did, I didn't know how to cope with that amount of loss and trauma. I, ju- I just didn't. And there were also, there were literally, there were, there were neurological changes to my brain, both from the virus and from the PTSD that, that changes the, the function of how you can even reason and think. And I think what was so, what was most hurtful during some of that time was most, if not all, of my loved ones and my community more or less ignored the very real and devastating effects of trauma on the spirit and the soul. I was kind of treated as merely a physical entity. And what I mean by that is, you know, within a couple months of leaving the hospital, I had regained most of my weight and I maybe had begun to look more normal. But there were deep, deep wounds in the spirit and the soul. And many times I think Western culture and Western churches don't fully understand that. Here's some examples of some phrases that were probably said at different times that may be well-meaning, but really not helpful. 
Well, just get over it. Well, just trust God. Just be happy. Oh, you'll be fine. It's no big deal. It's been two months you left the hospital. You better get it together. Other people have been through worse and they got over it. Maybe you strayed far from God. Maybe you didn't listen to God. That was so last year. Move on. It was that American pull yourself up by your bootstraps message. And it was either said explicitly or implicitly by different sources, but it, that didn't work because this was oversimplifying an incredibly complex situation. And I don't, I, if I had time, I could get into what I believe was a lot of spiritual warfare that's going on at the same time. That could be a talk in and of itself. So as a result of the, going back to those seven pillars or seven legs of the table I talked about, because of the crumbling of the first four of them, along with all of my emotional distress that came out of that, the relationships in those last, the last three categories that I talked about, they all suffered and were basically casualties. I lost, either through my own choices or their choices, just about every single relationship that existed in my life up to that point. And, and to own the part that is mine, some of that was my choice because the pain of, the pain of being misunderstood and not connected to was, was so vast and, and big that I, I couldn't take it. It was too painful. And it took a while for this to play out, maybe one to two, two and a half years for the whole thing to play out, but it did. I even lost a potential marriage. A woman I had been dating prior to going to Africa. Had this not happened, I would likely be married, maybe with children. So I want you to imagine for a second, all of you, to put yourself at about the age, about age 34, which is how old I was when that happened. I'm, I'm 38 now. So put yourself in those shoes. If you're younger than that, try to fast forward your life a little bit. Um, imagine at that stage in your life, whatever you were doing, and imagine if every hope, dream, and desire completely shattered for you. You see, for me, the dream of being a missionary, doing missions, wiped out, gone. After three weeks. That desire to have good health, gone, wiped out. Stability and security, gone. That kind of, you know, normal desire for this sort of happy, uninterrupted life, gone. The dream of being married and having family, gone. That desire for financial security, my hope for a future, gone. My ability to work, gone. At least, at least for some period of time. The ability for others to relate to my experience in my life, gone. The security that most Americans take for granted, gone. My sense of self, gone. Being rebuilt as I speak to you today. And you might think three, four years, that's a long time. But I, I can assure you with the devastation that I experienced, it's, it's not that much time. I never viewed life through the same lens again after that. Every possible dream, hope, assumption, narrative, paradigm shattered in short order. All seven of those pillars that I talked about, gone. I lost all of them in a year plus, two years. Every earthly thing that makes up a man's life, that makes him feel useful and validates his existence was stripped. 
Every single one. That's a lot of loss. It's, it's catastrophic. And 99.9% of people cannot comprehend what this does to the soul and psyche. And there wasn't any amount of hard work or theological truths or nice sermons or 12-step programs or advice of friends that could reach me. I've been broken in every single way. And the things that people said to me were said by people who had never lost anything. <laughs> never been through trauma. I had a, what I call a third world problem in a first world country. Now, to be as fair and as objective as I can, I, I didn't. Actually, most of the time, I didn't handle it very well. <laughs> I was in so much pain. Emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. I, I didn't even know how to cope. Thankfully, I did eventually find help with a very skilled therapist. But I had to go outside of my entire circle. I had to go outside of church and outside of everything I ever knew to find that. And I've gone through a lot of healing. I was really angry at God. I was really angry at a lot of people for not understanding me. I have never before, and I hope to never again experience that much pain. And I wish I would wish the losses that I sustained on no man, no woman, not even my worst enemy. And to be as honest as I can, in addition to all of the things that happened, I did at times seek coping mechanisms that were sinful and dishonoring to God. I wanted to end my life, I don't know how many times. I, I just didn't know how to cope with all that. But I understand, even though my brain was pretty hijacked, as I say, I'm still responsible for my actions. I've repented to God for the things that happened. It may be that the only people that might be able to relate would be either war veterans or refugees that come in from another country. They might be able to understand some of the confusion and disorientation that happens with such an experience. Now, I want to shift now and point to some scripture because there's some scriptures I found that really captured my experience. And they've taken on deep, deep, deep meaning to me. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, Psalm 42... I'm going to read verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9. Starting with verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Verse 9. I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You see, these verses are a really accurate description of how I felt. I guess me and King David can probably relate a little bit. Another one I found that was really helpful was Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. You see, even though I couldn't feel it during many, much of my suffering, the Lord was near to me because I was brokenhearted and my spirit was crushed. And it was comforting to know that I don't have to always look or even act successful 
for the Lord to be near me. I might have to look and act successful for others to be near me, but not for the Lord to be near me. Here's another one, Psalm 56, 8. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You see, King David had endured years of running from Saul, and he may have been a king, but he was about as honest as it comes to his internal state. So from that verse, I see God has a bottle of my tears. He has a book. He knows. He sees. So in light of those tears and what I've shared with you thus far, I want to go back to those words of Job that we started with at the beginning. And I've got a couple of verses to add to it. But So I'm going to read through these verses. If you want the references... Come to me after the service because I'm just going to read right through it. I'm, I'm kind of picking from different parts of the book. But I'm going to read them. And I just kind of want you to imagine as I'm reading them, you could imagine what Job was going through. You could try to imagine what I was going through. But these were kind of my words. And I'm going to, I'm going to add a little emphasis and emotion. So bear with me. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Then Job answered his friends and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? Job speaking to God again. He has put my brothers far from me. And those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends hate me. And those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my flesh my bones stick to my skin and my flesh, and I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Though he slay me, I will still hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. You see, these are the words of Job and they were my words. And I want you to know how honest Job was in this lament. He did not mince words. He did not try to hide his grief, his confusion, his frustration with God and his friends. He was very open with it. The scriptures demonstrate, demonstrated to me something that was much different than what I had experienced in church previously. It was not a stoic response to life suffering, but in fact, one full of expressive emotion. This man of God, Job, who was righteous, was raw and brutally honest in his lament. He poured out his heart to the Lord and the Lord heard his cry and he also affirmed the truth. In the midst of his lament. 
Now, I have a question for all of you. Do you think Job, or perhaps me, would have been accepted in one of our churches today with that kind of language? How many of you, if you heard those words from a friend, you would try to talk them out of their pain, or you would try to theologize them out of their pain? How many people would say, well, God works together for the good of all of those things, works together all things for the good of those who love him? Now, that is a true statement, but the timing of said statement is very important. You see, I, I lamented a lot. I shed more tears in the past four years than the rest of my life combined. And people did not know what to do with my tears. They didn't know what to do with either the tears or just how numb and out of mind I felt. And I had to kind of break that American myth that grown men don't cry. Because that's, well, the word I want to use I can't use in church. But that's nonsense. It's nonsense. Because it's only the most grown of men that allow themselves to feel deeply and to weep is what I found. Because King David, pretty manly guy, and he cried. And Jesus, he wept at Lazarus' tomb. See, I'll be very, very honest with you. See, God did not show up, I guess, in a period of time immediately after I left that hospital. And let me... Before you accuse me of heresy, let me see if I can explain. He did not show up maybe in the ways that I wanted. Because he could have, well, first of all, he could have prevented all of it from happening. He could have blocked me from ever going overseas. He could have prevented me from getting Ebola. He could have, he could have provided me with loved ones that maybe at least made an attempt to understand or go to counseling or something. He could have given the organization a heart to actually care for me and my family after it all happened, which we all needed care. And God did none of those things. And then he did not answer my cries, at least initially. He was silent. And the pain of his silence was excruciating. There was no theology. There was no, there was no verse. There was no cliche that was sufficient. The well-meaning, but sometimes ignorant words of friends of mine who sounded very much like Job's friends poured salt into my wounds and some of those wounds are still healing i've forgiven them but the wounds sometimes take a while to heal i can thankfully say i I am kind of on the other side of a lot of that but i still struggle i still have difficult days i even wonder could there be complications down the road because they don't even know they don't know enough about this disease the story's not over It's still being written. I'm not here to tell you that everything's better now and I have full victory in Christ because I probably wouldn't be very honest. I'm still battling. Sometimes I still grieve sort of the theoretical life I could have had if this hadn't happened. I still have days where I may cry thinking of all the losses and broken dreams that happened. I'm still waiting to see what the end of the story is and full redemption may or may not come in this life. So after hearing all that, what are the lessons? Because when you leave today, I don't want you to leave just like, oh, this neat little story about this guy you met at church. 
Because there are lessons here for me and there's lessons for you. And as painful as it is for me to say this, my, I believe my suffering was ordained by God to be for the benefit of the body of Christ. So there's three lessons. Okay? Lesson number one. Relationships and connection are what you will need to get through hardship, suffering, trauma, whatever. Let me turn to the scriptures. Romans twelve fifteen. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now notice what it says here, or what, notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say when someone is weeping, try to fix them doesn't say when someone is weeping, speak truth to them. Now, there's a time and a place for that. But it says, weep with those who weep. What does that mean? What are the scriptures saying? Well, it's describing empathy, sharing emotion, entering into another person's suffering. Because even though the Lord is always with us, he gives us his body to be with each other so they don't have to feel quite so alone. When someone is hurting, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, I'm not talking about, if your leg's broken, go to the hospital. <laughs> But if someone's hurting inside, the first thing to do is to comfort and connect to them. To extend the gift of our presence. And it may not be on our, t- on our own timeline. It may take some time and in, in some kinds of things, it may take a long time for that person to go through the healing they need to go through. So when someone is hurting, do not try to fix them. Instead, offer them your presence. Offer them comfort. It'll go a long way to connecting your hearts. If I can use an analogy from my own profession. So when somebody comes into my clinic and they got a gash in their arm or a gash in their leg, assuming they're not bleeding out, first thing I do is comfort, like, ice on the wound and some bandages and then we might put some stitches in. That's the first thing I do is bind up the brokenness in them. And if I can continue the analogy, if the, if the laceration, if it's deep, if the patient does not, like if they never come to the hospital or if I do nothing, it technically will heal on its own. Now, it's going to look ugly You're going to have tons of scar tissue in there. It's probably going to get infected. You might even lose some function of that part of your body. But if I come in and I put stitches in this, I bring the skin together and I I connect the skin and the tissues together, well, now it heals properly. Now you just have a a little bit of a scar. Probably doesn't get infected. You preserve function. Well, see, the, the emotional, the spiritual, psychological, it's no different. When somebody's been wounded... They need, to be, they need to be connected to first. And that's vertical with God and horizontal with people. Now, it has to be the right kind of people and the right kind of God. There's only one God that can provide this kind of healing, and it's, it's the God of the Bible. There's no other, no other entity that can. And that has to be people that, that can extend the right kind of comfort and empathy. You see, one of the reasons that I think my recovery was so difficult was one, because literal isolation in a room for a month. And then after that, no one could really connect to my experience. But not only that, it's, it's almost as if 
no one made even an, an attempt to. To, or even hold space for the emotional distress that I felt. I want to reference some scriptures for some of this. So Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to, pro- to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, and listen here, to comfort all who mourn. Psalm 147, verse 2 through 3. The Lord built up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. You see, we as God's people are to bind up the brokenhearted. That's God's heart. You see, healing is is, is mediated by God and other people. Uh, Even one of the things I learned in my experience was that even the way people speak to you, the way they receive you or don't receive you, the way they extend compassion or don't affects the neurons in your brain. And, 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 and when you're not getting that, it creates stress in your body. You can intuitively tell if someone is distancing themselves from your pain or if they're pressing in. So you see, first, wounds must be comforted and bound up. And I just want to give you some, some examples of phrases that you could use for a hurting person that communicate presence. Your anger, grief, sadness, frustration is real. It's valid. I'm willing to hold space for what you feel. I want to be present with you. What do you need? How can I be of service to you? There is no timeline for your grief, suffering, loss, whatever Whatever your process looks like, I want to try to help. Your losses are are difficult and valid. I see and I hear that this is very difficult for you. See, these things kind of help acknowledge where the person is at. And there's also a time and place to speak truth, but that's a separate sermon. (laughs) So when there's trauma and a void, I think it's the responsibility of the church to step in and, and demonstrate love and speak life and healing into this person. So that's lesson number one. Relationship and connection is what you need for proper healing. Lesson number two can be captured with two words. And that is shattered dreams. Let me be very, 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 very clear with you. Sometimes, even if you follow the call of the Lord... It might result in losing everything. The uniquely American narrative of success and blessing might get challenged in your life. Everything may not go as planned. Your dreams may shatter. You are not guaranteed success. You are only guaranteed that God's presence will be with you. And if I can back that up with scripture, a couple characters that went through loss and hardship and shattered dreams. Joseph followed God 
and for 15 plus years he was in the pit and then Potiphar's house in jail. And I'm sure he had some shattered dreams along the way. Job followed God and he did lose everything. And he did get restored and he got, I believe, new children to have. But his old children, who I'm sure he dreamed of watching grow up and do their thing, that never came back. That dream was gone for him. Jeremiah followed God's call to preach a difficult message to his nation. And he was reviled, hated, and locked in jail. He even lost his dream and freedom to get married because the Lord commanded him not to because of the destruction that would be coming to his people. And he lost his own culture as their city was sacked and they were deported. I'm sure he had many dreams that were shattered. Hosea followed God and he lost a dream of having a faithful wife because his wife cheated on him over and over and over again. John the Baptist followed God and lost his head, literally. Jesus followed God and lost his life. But each of these men always had God's presence with them, whether or not they could feel it. Even Jesus on the cross could not feel God's presence because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for me, I know there were times when God's presence was the only thing sustaining me. I had lost everything. I was left with nothing but him. And I ended up actually hungering for his presence like never before. It created a deep hunger to know God. I want to read some quotes from a book called Shattered Dreams by Larry Crabb. It's a great book if you pick it up. He says, if we are to discover a hope that continues through shattered dreams, that hope must be available to everyone regardless of their circumstances. We must discover a hope that thrives when dreams shatter, when sickness advances and poverty worsens and loneliness deepens and obscurity continues. The same hope that anchors us to God when dreams come true. Because it's sometimes harder to discover a desire for God when things go well. We may think we have, but more often we've found is, is actually our desire to use God rather than enjoy Him. Shattered dreams are the truest blessings. They help us discover our true hope, but it can take a long, dark time to discover that. So that's lesson number two, shattered dreams. They're part, sometimes part of the process, and it's not a popular message in probably our current culture. So that's, we have lesson number one, lesson number two, relationship and connection, shattered dreams. Lesson number three, lament. Honest lament is good, righteous, and sometimes necessary. And the scriptures seem to back this up. Now this, is, this next part is more of my opinion. It's not somebody else's quote. This is just mine. Take it or leave it. What I have found is, I kind of feel like if you're not willing to lament, if you're not willing to admit to God and to others the depth of what you feel, if you're not willing to really feel it, then, then you're not willing to have God enter that space. Because what you do instead is you, you deaden yourself to your true desires or your true feelings, and then you pretend that you're okay when, in fact, you're not okay. And famous 
figures from Scripture have aired their lament. Job, Jeremiah, Naomi, because her husband and two sons died. Isaiah, Hosea, King David, even Jesus, and there's probably more. I do think our lament will be slightly less lonely if others can enter that with us. And I'd like to quote something from a book called The Sacredness of Sorrow by Michael Card. He says, Our failure to lament also cuts us off from each other. If you and I are to know one another deeply, we must not only share our hurts and anger and disappointments with each other, which we often do, we must also lament them before the God who hears and who is moved by our tears. The degree to which I'm willing to enter into the suffering of another person reveals the level of my commitment for them. If I'm not interested in your hurts, I am not really interested in you. And neither am I willing to suffer to know you or be known by you. And he says, we all carry within ourselves a pressurized reservoir of tears. But in God's perfect time through lament, when these tears are released, they can form a vast healing flood. I want to tell you a brief story. I didn't know if I would be able to tell you this or not, but I think it's appropriate. To demonstrate that lament and and those things, about six months ago, I was at a, a conference in Kansas City at the International House of Prayer with some friends of mine from Austin. And one of the sets was only devoted worship. They said, we're not going to do a sermon this time. It's just two hours of music, you know, and worship. And during that time, I don't know how this happened. I don't fully understand it myself. But early on in the set, something, something shifted in my spirit. And this well of tears began to come up. Now, I'd cried a, several times before, but not like this. This was something deep and guttural. And I think for some reason, several years of just struggling finally just came together. And I lost it. And I lost it in front of all of my friends. There were 20,000 people this conference. Now, they couldn't all necessarily see me where we were sitting. But, I mean, this is at a public venue. And I lost it. And for the next Somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours, I wept and sobbed with no stop. As all of that trauma just came out. And contrary to every previous experience I had had, the people around me, they didn't run away. They pressed in. They came closer. They laid hands on me. They prayed for me. They read scripture over me. They were present with the pain. An eight-year-old girl who I've never met before came over and held my hand as I soaked the shirt of one of my friends sitting next to me as he held me in his arms for nearly two hours. 
Nobody said, what's your problem? Nobody said, oh, you should see your psychiatrist about that. Nobody said, uh, you need to, no, they, they, they were there. They met me there. They didn't run away. They came closer. And that is, was a demonstration of the body of Christ like I have never experienced. It was the most healing thing I've ever encountered. So, those are the three lessons. Relationship and connection. It's what you need for healing. With God and others. Two shattered dreams. Sometimes part of the process, even when we follow God. And number three, lament. It's good and necessary, and we don't need to be afraid of it. I'm going to wrap up with one scripture and then a song. The scripture I'm going to read is from the book of Revelation, and it gives me a lot of hope because I think it reminds me, and hopefully all of you, that none of our stories are over yet. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. And this next part is so key. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I'm going to step up the stage. And they're going to play a song. And you've probably heard the song before. It's Great Are You, Lord. And there's a lyric in the song. And it says, It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise. And this line has such deep meaning for me because there was a time in my life I could not breathe on my own. And it was his breath sustaining me. And so what I would just like you to do is, as the song is played, just meditate on this truth. That is, whether you're in the hospital on a ventilator or sitting in this church in the pews, your breath is from him. Every breath you take.